Good morning. And I'm going to do one more, we're going to do one more prayer because I'm preaching today because Phyllis and Chad are out of town. Most of you are aware that Phyllis's mom is going to be passing the next few days to a week. Um, they're up there having their time with her. She's had some major health issues. And uh, she's going to be dying the next couple weeks. So let's just pray for um, Chet and Phyllis and the family right now. Father, we want to lift up to you, Phyllis. We want to lift up to you, Chet. We want to lift up to you, the family of Stephanie, Lord. And Phyllis's mom has been a blessing to Phyllis and an encouragement in the Lord. Stephanie has been a blessing to those of us who've met her here. Lord, we know she loves you. God, we pray you would comfort her soul now. You comfort her family's souls. That her words, that her, her testimony would give evidence to and, and give credence to the gospel in the lives of those around her. That they would hear the gospel and see that her life is different, that her family's life are different. Lord, that though they mourn, it's not without hope. Father, I pray that you would comfort her body. You comfort her, her family as, as they prepare for her passing, Lord. God, we thank you that, that death is not the end, but you, you have defeated death, Lord, and that there will be a resurrection. God, we thank you and praise you for the good news that you give us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen. Thank you. Now, today we're looking at Titus, and we're looking at leadership. Um, leadership Paul calls Titus today to set up elders in the church in Crete. And I'm in Titus 1, uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Today we're going to look at the text where see elders were called to be the leaders of the church in Titus. He calls them to, to establish elders. But I want to ask a question as we come to the text. And that is, what's leadership? We talk a lot about it. We talk a lot about leadership. And what does it mean to lead others in the church, in our culture, in our workplaces, in our families? Numerous books have been written about leadership. We talk about leadership all the days, every day. I took a class on leadership in college of which everybody had to read a different book, summarize it, and bring it back. And they had books about emotional intelligence leadership and servant leadership and Christ-like leadership. And even the book I read was The Art of War and Leadership. So there's all kinds of books on leadership. And it's so important because we're people who need leadership. But we try to define it and write books on how to do it. And generally we see leadership best. We identify it best when we can see it and when we see it not happening. Now, when we talk about leadership, leadership is often defined by something. In our nation, leadership is defined by our constitution. You know, it gives powers to our branches of governments, legislative, executive, judicial. It defines who has the power to make decisions and who can overturn those decisions. And it's supposed to establish leadership for our nation. You know, right now, the leadership of our nation is a very important issue. We're coming to the election in five months of who will be the next president of the United States. This is a huge issue, and a lot of people are Never Trump, never Bernie, never, never Hillary, never nobody. Um, and, and it's just such an important issue. We get so passionate about it because we see that leadership defines the future of the group that they're leading. It defines the, the direction they're going in. 
In our nation, we see that in our presidents and our politicians. And yet, it's different in our churches. In our nation, it's a, pop, it's a contest that has devolved into popularity and slogans. But in our churches, leadership is supposed to be some, so much more. The leadership of the church is supposed to be defined by what the Bible says. In this text we're looking at today, Titus 1, 5 through 9, we're going to look at God's plan for leadership in the church and what that looks like. What we're going to find today is that gospel-centered leaders are God's will for gospel-centered churches. Gospel-centered leaders are God's will for gospel-centered churches. We'll find that God calls for the churches to have gospel-centered leaders, that these leaders are to be men of Christ-like character, godly character, and that these gospel-centered leaders are men of gospel soundness. Let me begin by reading the text. Paul, writing to Titus, says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but a hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Leadership in the church, leadership in the New Testament is incredibly important. Jesus invests in his disciples for, over, for at least three years, if not over three years, he spends his life with them. He teaches them. He disciples them. He lives life with them so that, that when he ascends to heaven after his, after his death and resurrection, his disciples are faithful to go forward with his mission to teach that to others and to establish the church, to proclaim his gospel. We saw, see Paul establish, and Barnabas establish elders and work with elders in Acts. We see Paul write the qualification of elders in Titus in 1 Timothy we see Peter speak about elders in 1 Peter. Now, the leadership of the church is so important because the leaders of the church are those who set the mission, who set the vision for the church. Not only that, they teach the church and they protect the church from falsehood. So it's important for a church to have good leadership. Now, this is something that so often we say, we, think, we say that the Bible doesn't say really anything about church leadership. I've heard this before in churches, Southern Baptist churches, that the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about church leadership other than the fact they should be a Christian, so we'll just do whatever we want, whatever works. And I, I, I have to say that's absolutely wrong. Now, I grew up Roman Catholic, so a lot of the stuff I grew up with was absolutely wrong. Um, but we want to make sure that we're striving to be faithful what God teaches. Now, the first point I want to look at in verse 5 here is that Paul reminds Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. So Paul and Titus have been through Crete. They've shared the gospel. They proclaim the gospel to the cities, to the towns. Paul has left. He left Titus behind so that 
you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, Paul leaves Titus to appoint elders from within the towns that they're at, elders from within the churches that are forming to lead the church. Now, this Paul had just come through and preached the gospel. There was no second, third generation Christians in these towns. The earliest some of these Christians could have heard the gospel was in Acts 2. So some of them could have heard the gospel in Acts 2, came to Christ and came home. But for the majority, they're hearing the gospel, coming to Christ, and now Paul has left Titus behind to put the church into order and to appoint elders. So Paul is calling Titus to establish, to select men who are, as we look at their character, as I've read with a text, that exemplify a certain level of character, of Christ-likeness, of godly grasping, holding to the gospel and teaching it, that he's asking for, for Titus to look for men that, that grow in Christ-likeness and that will be able to take leadership responsibilities. Now, this is something where Paul is calling Titus to do this but we know throughout Paul's writings that this isn't like bootstrap Christianity. You know, I've, I, this is what I learned when I first came to Christ. You know, now that I'm a Christian, I just need to work harder. I just need to pick, just bootstrap myself, pull on my boots, and work really hard to become like Jesus. Really hard to kill sin. Really hard to be this. And that's not completely wrong, but it's half wrong because it completely denies the work of the Holy Spirit. Bootstrap Christianity, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get moving without recognizing God's work by the Holy Spirit to conform us to Christ's image is incomplete and in error. Paul is calling Timothy to look for men that God is equipping in those local towns, in those churches, to be the elders of the church. That God is working it by the Holy Spirit to develop this character, to develop this gospel soundness. To leave the church. Now, there were no seminaries. There were no job posting. There was no LinkedIn for churches. This was the men of the church were to walk in Christian faith, and by as the Holy Spirit worked in them, Titus was to select among them elders. And what do they do after that? What do the churches do after Titus leaves? They disciple other men. They disciple youth. The the church grows as God raises up men to be elders in that church as the other as the as the Lord raises as there is need. I apologize. So Titus establishes elders, but what happens from there? Well, God continues to bring an increase of men of mature faith and sound doctrine who can lead the church in those areas. It's not that. Titus is establishing elders once and then they're no longer used. It's that that is the pattern that the church is supposed to follow. That the church is supposed to produce within itself leaders for the church. One of the things when I came to Christ, I came to Christ at 19. I was Roman Catholic. I came into a Southern Baptist church. First of all, that was culture shock, let me tell you. I mean, people stood around, they talked to each other, and there was food. I was amazed. I like food. And uh, I was befuddled. I'm like, wow, these Baptists, they they like to talk to each other. They hang out afterwards. 
They invite each other in their home, and they have potlucks like all the time. Um, but one of the things I was befuddled by, because I was a young man, and when you're a young college guy and you come to Christ and you're excited about the gospel, church is like, we want you, come on up. And they, they throw, they, you know, very quickly grab you and dra- almost drag you into ministry opportunities. And I'm like, okay, I'm a young guy. I'm like, okay, I don't know any better, so yes. I was a deacon before I knew it in the church. And as I'm here, I'm sitting, I'm talking with the deacons, I'm talking with the elders, I'm talking with the pastor. And I'm starting to hear things. I'm like, as I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading through Titus, I'm reading through First Peter. And as I'm reading the Bible, I'm, I'm, I'm talking like, well, what about elders? What about leadership of the church? You know, I don't understand it well enough to communicate it clearly because I'm a young, zealous 19-year-old, 20-year-old. But I'm like, what about leadership of the church? Where does this come? Oh, you go to seminary. You go to seminary to get discipled to be a leader of a church. So how do you get pastors? Well, we, we, we look up people who are applying for jobs. So, well, then how do you have a vision for the church that lasts longer than your pastor? Crickets. That is a way that Southern Baptists, that we are a part of that, of that denomination. That's the way that a lot of Baptist churches do this, is just look for, look for leadership from young men graduating seminary and bring them in and hope and pray for the best. But I, I would argue that from the beginning, God has been calling Titus, Paul has been calling Titus through the Lord, through his word, establish elders within the church. And these men are to lead the church. And that elders will come from the church. Now, I'm talking a lot about men here today. And when we talk about leaders from the church, we realize that that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That elders being raised up is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to conform men to his own image, to work in their hearts, to make them more like Christ, to equip them to teach and preach the gospel. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet, at the same time, Paul calls us to strive. That is the, the, the work that God calls us to do, is strive hard for Christ-likeness, knowing it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we want to do that. So Paul first calls Timothy to establish elders. And guys, when I talk about where do, where do elders come from, outside of the first ones established by Timothy, established by Paul, established by others in the churches, they come as men are discipled. Elders don't pop out. You know, there, was, there is no factory where we just hit a button, here comes a Kyle, here comes a Caleb, here comes a Chet. You know, elders are the product of discipleship. They're the product of a church that invests in them. They're a product of older men who are pouring into them and equipping them. It's the, they're a product of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Guys, let's be th- first of all, let's be thankful for them because they're the gift of God for our good. And I don't say this as an elder, and I wasn't paid to say it, but let's be thankful for the elders because truly we are incredibly blessed to have Caleb and Chet and Kyle. Second of all, let's pray for the elders that 
they would be blessed and they would continue to grow in Christ-likeness and Christian maturity and love. And guys, let's strive that we would be a blessing to them, that they would serve with gladness and joy as elders. And men, I don't know those of us who are here. I know that there's a couple of interns here, myself included, who are examining our call to ministry. I know that there's other men here who have expressed calls to ministry in the past or have examined that. But guys, let's ask the Lord to make us more like Christ. It may not be that we're all, we're not, we're not all going to be elders. But let's not, let's not neglect what God can do in us and what he is doing in us. And let us not be afraid to ask the question of, Lord, what would you have me do? Where would you have me serve in the church? Because Paul calls Titus to establish elders. He doesn't say that the Holy Spirit falls on them and says, has a big old flashing light that says, this guy is going to be your next elder. He says, look for these characteristics we're going to look at next. So in verse 5, we see that Paul calls Titus to establish elders. Next, we're going to see that these men were to be men of godly character. Because in verses 6, 7, and 8, he says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Ladies, I'm talking a lot about men today. I'm talking a lot about elders today. But 90% of what I'm talking about, and men who are not interested and do not feel called to be elders, 90% of what I'm talking about today, in fact, closer to 100% of what I'm talking about today, all the characteristics of elders are specific for the church, but in general are for every Christian believer. No one here has the right to check out or say, well, this doesn't apply to me. Because the same character called for in an elder is called for in every Christian. I just want to make that clear because I know it's easy to check out when somebody preaches about men or elders or preaches primarily about women and wives. Christ-like character is a call for all of us. I want to give a word of encouragement here at the beginning before I dig deep into this text because it's very easy to read this text and just feel beat up. You know, we're going to be looking at Christ-like character and so often we fall short of this. We're going to, we're sinners. I don't say that to justify this, but because there is good news that we have forgiveness in Christ. When we fall short, we have forgiveness of our sin. And not only that, but this isn't bootstrap Christianity where we just make ourselves better. God's Spirit is at work in His children to conform us more and more to Christ-like character. As I said earlier, the characteristics I'm going to look at here in this text we strive for, and they're also the work of the Holy Spirit. Those will go hand in hand. We strive by the power that works mightily within us. And if we are Christians, if we are believers, we can have confidence and hope that God does work to make us more like Christ. We're not without hope. His spirit is at work mightily, mightily within us to make us more like him. 
So let's look at what these, this elder, this leader should be in the church. What, uh, in the verse 6, we're going to notice he begins by speaking he must be above reproach, irreproachable. Paul goes on to use this same term again in verse 7. He says, in case you didn't get it once, I'm going to say it to you twice. You know, if you're parents, you know that that's like, get this, get this. If your spouses, you hear this at times. Um, if you're humans at work, we, we do this. We repeat things that are important because we want people to get it. So what does above reproach mean? It's irreproachable. It's a life of integrity and character that no one can point at and say, you're not living in light of what you believe. These men are to be above reproach. Why? Because the elders of the church are the, the leaders of the church. And they, when people look at the church, they're going to look at their lives and say, uh-uh, I know this guy. He's out drinking and drinking it up and having a fun time with the rest of the guys down at the bar. He doesn't believe this. Elders are called to be above reproach because their lives, or, or because if they're not above reproach, they will bring disdain and disrepute to the gospel. Their lives are to be above reproach so that the gospel is exalted, so that the people in the church are encouraged, and so that the people outside the church see their good works, and even if they don't agree, they, they, they cannot bring any, any charge against the gospel because of these elders. Now, right after speaking about being above reproach, Paul calls Timothy to start at home. That the husband of one wife or a one-woman man and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, this is if they're married, as we have Kyle who's not married as an elder. We as a church believe and have, and have voted on have affirmed that we are looking for a man of character who, if he is married, he's a one-woman man. What is a one-woman man? It's a husband of one wife, so you're not a polygamist. But it's more than that. It's a man whose heart and whose attitude is set upon his wife. His love is set upon his wife. He's not a man who goes around flirting and hitting on the ladies and being a ladies' man at work. But he's a man whose heart whose love is for his wife and family. He's a man who, who encourages his family. He's a man who's, who, who is, whose love and affection is for his wife. And if they're not married, if these men are not married, the same characteristics apply. They're not to be flirts. They're not to be chasing skirts. They're not to be womanizers or, or abusive in any way. But they're called to be faithful in their singleness, they're called to be faithful if they date. They're called to be faithful when they're married. And guess what, guys? This isn't just elders. This is all of us. Not only are they to be faithful men to their wives, but they're to lead their children toward faith in Christ. Now, this text in, in, in verse 6 speaks about his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. The believers also mean, the word can also be translated as faithful. If we as, a, we as a church 
do not require that our elders have children that are all believers. If we did, we wouldn't have elders right now, other than Kyle. We have elders who have children who are too young or who are just starting to grasp the gospel. So what we're looking for here are men who are equipping, training, discipling, educating, fathering their children toward faithfulness in Christ. Why do we say that? Because we don't, fathers, elders can't make their children Christians any more than we can make our friends Christians. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit to change their hearts. It's no different in an elder's house than anyone else's home. Salvation is by faith through grace by the work of the Holy Spirit. So the elder is a one-woman man who loves his wife well. An elder is a man who is not open to uh, charges against him. An elder is a man whose children are faithful, that raises up their children right in the way they should go, and their children are not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. Why, after above reproach, does Paul hit on the home life? Why? Men, because by our actions, by our words, by our leading, our home life is going to reflect who we are. Our home life is going to reflect our nature and our character. The elders' home life will reflect theirs. Our families know us best. Our families, so there are a couple reasons why. Because our families reflect us, but also our families see us at our best and worst. It's easy to come on Sunday and say, I'm going to tramp down on my sin. I'm going to act happy to see everybody and loving and go home and be a grouch all the rest of the week. It's easy to do that when we come to church on Sunday. That's why Paul calls Titus to look at the home. The elders, husbands of one wife, the children are obedient, faithful. Our families see it at our worst and our best, our sin and our heart for the Lord. And if a man is not faithful to his wife, how will he be faithful to the gospel or church leadership? He won't. Second, as Chet has said multiple times, our children are not only sin factories, they're mirrors. Our children reflect back to us our sin. They they often reflect back our hearts toward God as well. Now, it's, it's important. They don't do it perfectly reflect our sin. They have their own sin as well. But they do reflect our hearts toward God, and they learn what's important from their parents. And for a, fam- a man not to lead his family to walk with Christ in maturity, what business does he have to lead the church toward maturity in Christ? Guys, I... I Sometimes when you preach a sermon, God decides to punch you in the gut the night before. And I was out until 9 o'clock sitting with Young, reading and studying, and realized that I was wasting so much of my time on silly stuff and needed to focus my heart and soul on a number of things. And as I went home, I'm like, thank you, Lord. I was, I was feeling like I confessed something that needed to be confessed. I was feeling joy in the Lord. I went home, talked to Claudia, And immediately, I had conflict in my heart. 
and it took me about five minutes because I got upset with Claudia about something. And I don't say this to shame her. She's a blessing to me. But this was my heart and my sin. I got upset with her, and it wasn't until about five minutes later God goes, you know, the Holy Spirit brought down conviction. Keith, you just confessed that sin to me. You're preaching about Titus 1, 5 through 9, and how the husband leads the family, and your example is what she's following. I, I was silenced. I, I think I went in, my wife, Claudia wasn't too happy with me. I'm like, you know what? That wasn't even about you. That was about me. I saw my own ugliness and the way I failed to lead. And I don't say this to condemn myself, but because, guys, our wives, men, our wives, our families, learn not only from when we structure and teach and have a Bible study together, not only when we sit down and read books together, but our families learn and, and will model, will live out what we model. You know, I was speaking with Caleb about this this morning. He said that uh, if we want to see change in our spouse, we need to model that change we want to see. So Paul calls Titus first to their home life because it, it will reveal so much of their hearts. Ladies, I have a, a challenge to you. Those of you who are married, those of you who are not, are not the characteristics that Paul calls Titus to look for, characteristics you want in your husband? Faithfulness, loving their children, raising them up well, godly character, gospel soundness, above, being above reproach in their character. Ladies, pray for your husbands. Pray for them daily. Encourage them in the Lord and what you're learning. You are their helpmate. You are in their lives for their good. If you're single, ladies, then pray that the Lord would grow you into a woman who is used mightily for his glory and his kingdom. Pray that if you do in the future have a husband, that he would be a man of godly character. Oftentimes we, we think as humans that we can badger each other, we can argue with each other, we can fight with each other um, to get our way to win. And that's not gospel leadership. Gospel leadership is teaching, service, modeling, vision casting. It's what we've seen at Redeemer with Chet and Caleb and Kyle. And then once again, None of these characteristics are for elders alone. None of these characteristics are for married men alone. That all of us are called to live lives that do not bring ill words about the gospel, that, that do not bring disrepute to the gospel. All of us are called to living lives of faithfulness, whether we're married to our wives, if we're not married, to treat women as people created in the image of God, to love them as sisters in the faith. These are characteristics of godly Christian men. And let us strive to be these men, guys.
Let us strive to repent of our sins and failures, to confess them, and to commit to striving to grow in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in verses 7 and 8, Paul goes, Titus, just in case you forgot, I'm going to mention this again. Let's them be above reproach. An overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. I'm not going to repeat everything I said, but I will say it's so important that this overseer, an elder, is to be above reproach, that his life, that his work, that his family life, that his internet surfing, that his coaching teams, whatever it may be, that his life is above reproach, that his life does not bring disrepute, bring disregard, bring slander against the gospel. Now, he goes on in verse 7. He says, He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, let's look at these. He gives seven positive qualities to pursue and five negative qualities that we need to not have to repent of. He calls them twice to be above reproach. I guess there's eight qualities. Hospitable, lovers of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He gives five negative qualities. Arrogance, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, and greedy for gain. We're going to first look at what a leader should not be. We're going to see what a leader should not be. A leader must not be arrogant. That is someone with an overinflated sense of self or entitlement that makes ministry about getting what they want. Makes life about getting what they want. A leader is not to be quick-tempered. The quick-tempered are those who lash out in anger when they don't get their way. Those who live by their passions and do not strive to restrain their anger. They explode at others when they're angry instead of communicating and being gracious and patient. A leader is not to be a drunkard. The drunkard is mastered by alcohol or other addictive substances. He has surrendered the mastery and control of his life and now lives enslaved to drink. A leader is not to be violent. He's not to be a bully. A a, a leader who's violent is one who leads by violence and threats to get his way. He uses his words, his fists, even his Bible wrongly to force others to do what he says. The last thing a leader is not to be is greedy for gain. Those who are greedy for gain see ministry as a way of enriching their own pockets. Those who love paychecks more than people. This is an example of an anti-leader, an anti-elder. This was borrowed from Tim Challies, challies.com. Don't want anybody questioning that. That wasn't all my original thoughts. Um, but it, was, it hit me so hard when I read it, I had to share it. Because this is the example of an anti-elder. This is someone who's not a Christian leader. But so many people lead like this. So many people in, in bosses who act this way, politicians who act this way. Spouses who act this way. Husbands who act this way toward their wives. Wives who act this way toward their husbands. Think about it for a minute. How often are we arrogant? 
have an overinflated sense of self, of wanting things as though this is we, our world and we're God? How often are we quick-tempered when we don't get our way to lash out? Maybe it's not verbally lash out at our spouse. Maybe it's just withhold love, withhold affection. How often are we a drunkard? Maybe not addicted to wine, but addicted to so many other things that master us. Relaxation. Food. Entertainment. Other things that master us. A drunkard is mastered by alcohol and other things. How often are we mastered by something other than the gospel? You know, how often are we violent bullies, wanting our own way and manipulating others to get our own way? And how often are we greedy for gain? We're in it for the money. We're in it for the, for the affirmation. We're in it for what we want rather than what others want. Guys, this is us. I realized on Friday I was being nice to someone at a store. And God brought great conviction on my heart and said, Keith, are you nice to them because you want something from them? Are you nice to them because they are people created in the image of God and you want them to know Jesus? I said, so, so often, I'm not loving people because I want their best. I'm loving them because I want them to treat me the best. Guys, I share this because we all can see ourselves in these descriptions. But there's hope. God is faithful. If we confess our sins to him, and repent, he is faithful to forgive. And not only that, he is faithful to work in our hearts by his spirit to turn us away from these sinful habits and attitudes and toward Christ. The good news in Christianity is that there is nobody in the church who is a believer who can say that this is just the way I am. I'm just naturally this way. No, Christians are people who the Holy Spirit dwells in who is working to change us to make us like Christ. We have hope. And that is glorious. Now let's look at the seven qualities of biblical leadership. Eight. Twice there to be above reproach. Hospitable. hospitable, Lovers of good. Self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These are leaders with integrity. Leaders whose, whose lives are above reproach. Whose lives do not bring disdain toward the gospel. These are leaders who open their homes and hospitality toward others. They are those who pursue what honors the Lord. They're not quick to anger or malicious. They're righteous, holy, and disciplined. The picture Paul is painting here with these words is not just good character. It's not just Here's seven or eight qualities of what a godly man should look like. He's painting a picture here of Jesus Christ. He is pointing out that gospel-centered leaders will exemplify, that will share qualities of Christ. It's a picture of maturity in Christ. Now, this is particular for the elders in our church. 
but this is broadened to all of us. We're all to strive to be Christ-like in our attitudes and hearts. And not only that, but as he's calling these leaders to be of godly character, Christ-like character, we see in our lives that all of us at times are going to be leaders. Whether it's in classrooms, at workplaces, with our children, with our grandchildren, with our families. We all have opportunities to be leaders. And the call to Christ-like character is for all those who've been saved by Christ's blood. All those who the dwelling of the Holy Spirit is in their lives. So let us strive to live this out. Let us strive to honor God with our lives, knowing that he is at work to change us. Now, so often when we hear these lists, at least for me, there's seven and five, that's 12. I think, scout law. I was a boy scout. I was an Eagle scout. So I'm like, a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. You know, I still know it after 18 years of doing it before. So often we think these lists are just about things we should and shouldn't do, that they're just do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, check marks that we go through our day and tally off. But no, God is calling us to look at our hearts and repent of the evil and strive after what is good because these are the characteristics of Christ. Because his Holy Spirit is working in us to make us more like this. Because we have hope of change. So God calls churches, as we talked about earlier, to, have, to establish leaders, leaders of gospel. And these leaders are supposed to be gospel-centered, men of gospel character. Now let's see how gospel-centered leaders are men of gospel soundness. The last verse here in verse 9 says, He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. There's three things an elder has here. Hold fast to the, to the sound doctrine, the word that is taught. Hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that you can give instruction and rebuke those who contradict it. Elders are to be the men who hold fast to the gospel, who hold fast to the scriptures, who hold fast to the doctrines of the faith. There to be men who are striving to know the Word of God, to love the Word of God, to teach it to others. Who hold fast to it no matter what life throws at them. They cling. They hold fast to the truths of who God is and what He's done. They're also called to teach and rebuke those who contradict truth. Now, instruction or teaching is one of the primary roles of, of church leadership. They're to take this gospel that they hold fast to and they're to teach it. They do this many different ways. The leadership of the church do this through preaching. But not only that, they do this through foundations courses. They do this through community groups. They do this through LTGs. They do, Kyle does this half the time. I have a conversation with Kyle and thank you, your blessing, 
And you'll have a conversation with Kyle, and you'll walk away, and five minutes later, you're like, he just encouraged me with Scripture. Like, Kyle just gave me exactly what I needed from the Bible to encourage me. That's instruction. And that's awesome. Caleb has done the same thing many times, as is Chet. This is some of the ways that they instruct. One of the great ways they instruct is through the foundation courses. Guys, some people joke. I've had people poke fun at me because I've been through them three times now. This is my third time through. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that because, first, people make fun of me. They're like, oh, you've already forgotten it again? These guys teach this because it's so important that we know it. And so often we forget what we've learned so quickly. We need the truths. And they give us these foundation courses so that we can learn to hold fast to the word as taught, that we may persevere in the faith. I want to encourage you all as you have time to check them out, the foundation courses. They're, they're well worth it. So like I said, the leadership of the church, they teach, they instruct. They teach proactively to help people grow toward Christ. We grow together into Christ, into Christ-like maturity. And also, as they instruct in truth, they protect the church from error proactively and intentionally by teaching what is true and right. Guys, we need to hear the gospel every day. We need to be challenged by the word of God daily. So often the gospel is kind of seen as this, I believe in Jesus to get into Christianity, I move on to other things. I was guilty of that for years. But we need to hear the gospel daily. We need to be reminded of the gospel day by day, sometimes hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute. We need to do this because the gospel, hearing and believing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to each other in the church, not only outside the church, is the method by which God uses to persevere us in the faith and grow us in Christ-likeness. We never, ever grow beyond the good news of the gospel. Guys, Aaron did a great job thus far leading us to praise God for what he's done for us. That while we were still sinners, while we were rebels against God, at the right time, God sent Christ to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved. And he raised him again from, life, from death to life. And through faith in him, we can have a right relationship with God. Oftentimes, we don't get that. We don't get a lot of things about the gospel because we generally think we're good people. You know, God takes me, God needs me here. I'm sorry, God needs me here as a Christian. I'm right about here. So the gospel just fills out that much. That's not the gospel, guys. The gospel isn't that we were really close to being friends with God and that Jesus just made the rest of the way. The gospel is while we were enemies of God, while we were in active rebellion. In Romans, he uses the, uh, Paul uses the word enmity, active warfare against God, while we were warring against God, enemies of God, trying to destroy him like, like, like Saul, trying to destroy the church. While we were enemies of God, at the right time, Christ came. God saved his enemies, those who 
whose the top bar is his perfect holiness and righteousness and our sin, we have no hope. It's not this little distance. It's an infinite gulf between God's holiness and our nature. And God shows by his good grace and will, not but because he had to, but because he willed it, to save a people for himself. That he took Christ, that God the Son became man and dwelt amongst us. Like I said earlier, he lived the perfect life of obedience, of sinfulness, sinlessness that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve for sin, on which, during which the wrath of God was poured out on him for our sin. And he was raised again in newness of life as the first fruits of the children of God. God the, the, guys, the good news of the gospel is that God offers not, not being made right with God, but being made his children, forgiveness of sin and adoption as his children through faith in Christ. So let us hope, let us believe, let us trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. Let us cling to that truth. And when we are so stuck on our sin in our lives and we're like, I'm a horrible person. Last night I was doing this to myself. I'm a horrible person and I'm hopeless. I, my sin, there's no hope for me because I keep sinning. I keep failing with the same sins day out, day out, day out. Well, guys, the good news is God is bigger than our sin. And Christ's death has paid for every sin, past, present, and future. And not only that, not only does God make us, free us from our sin and make us his children, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we may, he will work in us to conform us to Christ. And he calls us to strive to walk in that, in that as well. To strive to work toward Christ's likeness, knowing it is the work of the Holy Spirit. I wish I could perfectly explain how that works, but I don't know anybody who can perfectly explain how we are to work and yet God is working in us. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, glorious mystery. But the fact of the matter, our work is the Holy Spirit working in us at the same time to conform us to Christ's image. So we need the gospel. And that's what the church elders have been given to instruct us in. And that's what we as a church have been given to encourage one another in. But not only are the elders given to instruct, they're given to rebuke those who contradict the truth. This role for elders is one that protects the church from error. Now in Paul and Titus' time, the circumcision party would come into the churches, right? Paul and Titus would come in. Paul and Timothy, Paul and these other guys would come in in the book of Acts, and they would go and preach grace in Christ. Guess what happens after that? Well, the Jewish party of, of the circumcision party would come in and say, grace in Christ is great, but now you have to do all these things too in order to be saved. Obey the law, be circumcised. They would add to the gospel. And Paul is calling Titus, and he's calling for elders who will be able to protect the church from this false teaching. Guys, this is of incredible importance today. We don't need teachers to walk in after, after Chet on Sunday and start going, you shouldn't believe this, believe you need to be circumcised. We don't, we don't have, need to have that. We have Facebook. We have YouTube. We have a thousand people telling us a thousand lies about God a week. Radio, TV, you name it, we hear false teaching constantly. 
We live in a world that ex- in exalts, even in a Christian culture that exalts people who say your best life is now. We have Christian TV shows that, ought, that say you need to send in money to get blessed or touch the TV. We live in a world of false promises, false religions, and false doctrine. It's the utmost importance that we have leadership in the church that not only instructs in truth but rebukes lies. And guys, our elders are faithful in this. They are faithful in this to encourage their faithfulness to rebuke false truth, falsehood and equip us with truth. Now, how often do you hear questions about the Bible or statements about Christian doctrine and you just kind of go, wait a minute, something that doesn't smell right here. It may not be that you're like, okay, well, that's a... Uh, that's somebody who's completely rejecting the inerrancy of Scripture and rejecting this and rejecting, uh, you know, you may not have all the theological words. I don't even have the theological words for it. Uh, and, you know, there's times where Chet, Caleb and Kyle may not have all the theological words for it, but all of us can smell when something's rotten. And oftentimes when we have that, it's good that we have these elders who we can talk to and say, hey, You know, I was on the internet today. What do you think of this? They can say, well, this is wrong because the gospel teaches this. This is wrong because of this. That they can, they can, they can correct and rebuke error. Not only do they instruct like that, but they also at times have to rebuke those who are in error, those in falsehood. They're to rebuke those who contradict the false teaching contradict the teaching of the gospel with falsehood. The elders in Titus are are appointed to teach and rebuke, to instruct, to hold fast to the truth. And leaders today in the church are called to teach and rebuke. The leadership has a particular calling for this in the church. And all this is being said about elders, but one last time, I want to challenge you that we all have opportunities to teach. We all have to opportunities and, and, and times where we will have to rebuke and correct. We don't always have to go to the elders. Oftentimes, I'm not saying we shouldn't go to the elders, but oftentimes in our community groups, by God's grace and blessing, we have people in our lives we can say, you know, if I was in Brian's, hey, Brian, I heard this today on the radio. What do you think? And Brian will say, you know, there's a problem with that because of this. Hey, I've got Mormons knocking on my door or Seventh-day Adventists. What do I do? And, you know, Caleb or Kyle will be happy to help you be able to share the gospel with them. You know, you can say, I have coworkers who, who buy into Joel Olstein, who buy into Creflo Dollar, who buy into all kinds of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And the people in your community group and your LTG can encourage you and equip you to to engage those people with truth, to not fall into that false doctrine. The elders are given for this, but God is raising up leaders in our church and in churches to be able to do this as well in our community groups, in our LTGs. Each of us have that opportunity. For some of us, it can be as simple as, honey, have you read this Facebook post? It can be as simple as read this article. 
It could be as simple as texting each other and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or it could be as complex as systematic theology where we deal in a, in a foundations course with a lot of false teaching and instructing truth. But guys, we are all teachers. When we share the gospel with others, we're teaching. When we disciple our children, we're teaching. And we must take this responsibility seriously. We all want to strive to teach what is true, to hold fast to the gospel. Guys, today we've seen that God calls the churches to have gospel-centered leaders. That Paul calls Titus to establish leaders. That these are to be men of godly character and that they're to be men of gospel soundness. As I've said throughout this, guys, this is something where we want to strive as believers to strive toward Christ-likeness in our lives, holiness, lives of repentance and faith. Not to get anything from God, but because we want to, to be more like Christ because he's our Savior and we love him. So let us strive for this. Let us strive for, as churches to, to grow in discipleship and equip the next generation of Christians. Let us strive to live out the gospel in our lives, in our homes, to be these, these men of gospel character, of, of soundness in teaching. But guys, the, the best way we can keep from this just becoming legalism, the best way I can think of is don't make a list of characteristics. Don't go home and say, I need to do this and this and this and this four times a day. Guys, let us get a picture. Let us get a, into the Word and see the beauty and excellence of Jesus Christ. Chet has said so many times as we've been here at Redeemer that we become what we behold. We become more like that which we worship. So let's pour our hearts our minds, our spirits into focusing on the goodness and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, he will make us more like him. What does it mean to look upon the beauty and glory of Christ? Guys, it means examine Christ in the word. It means read the gospels. And see how he works. I did not get this for years. Because beauty to me is something that's like art. It's like outdoors. How is something beautiful? But truly, I think I shared last time I preached here. Sports help me. Because they talk about a beautiful layup. They talk about a beautiful shot. A, a, a glorious player. An excellent player. And they're talking about the person's actions. The person's words, what the person did, how they acted, what they taught. That's how sports, how history, how people are defined. When we're talking about the, the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ, the excellence of Christ, there's a very real way we can see that, and that's look, read the Gospels and who Christ is, what he's done. Meditate, think upon that, and marvel at God's love for us in Christ. So guys, let us strive to draw near to Christ, to behold him, 
to strive to grow in godliness by knowing and loving him. And God, by his spirit, has already promised to make us like Christ. So let us strive in that by his power that works mightily within us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your love in the gospel that while you did not have to save us, you chose to by your grace and power, Lord. God, we thank you for the elders, that you established elders to lead the church to men of gospel character, men of gospel soundness. Lord, we thank you for the elders you've given us, the example that they set. And Lord, we pray that you'd raise up men to be elders in this church in the future. God, I pray that we would flee legalism and cling to the gospel to rejoice in who Christ is and what he's accomplished. Lord, that we would behold Christ and be made more and more into his image. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.